UBC's Action on Sepsis podcast series focuses on telling the whole journey of sepsis from the perspective of the patient, with input from healthcare workers, researchers, and other individuals advocating for improved sepsis care nationally and globally. Now, join Christine Russell as she showcases a diverse collection of stories and shares knowledge from research and clinical fields to support learning so that we can help protect yourself and your loved ones. In 2016, Kristen McDonald developed septic shock after a bowel puncture that occurred during gallbladder removal surgery. Kristen became motivated by her own experience to help other sepsis patients and their caregivers navigate the post-sepsis recovery process. To learn more about her story, I encourage you to listen to episode one of this series. In today's episode, we will discuss the effects sepsis has on a patient and what it is like to treat a patient in the ICU. We are joined by Dr. John Boyd. Welcome, Dr. Boyd. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Dr. John Boyd. I'm an intensive care doctor and researcher at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, BC. I work in the intensive care units in Vancouver. I have a lab in severe infection and sepsis in which I research the causes and new treatments for that in uh, patients and use other models such as animals and cell lines to discover new therapies. And very happy to talk with you today. We'll just start today with uh, chatting a little bit about uh, the ICU experience of patients. I mean, you see a lot of those being an intensivist. And maybe just tell us a little bit about from a, a physician perspective, uh, what what you see patients go through uh, when in the ICU with severe infection from sepsis? Yeah, good, great question. So, so from our pers- we see from the other side of the curtain uh, uh, from the patient. But um, what what we see is over the years we've recognized that that although infection is driving a whole bunch of different organ problems, one one of the the first things to show a significant reduction in function is is your ability to re- reason and think and, and talk. So by the time we see patients as an intensive care doctor, they've probably been experiencing the infection for one, two, three days at a lower level and have come in in more of a crisis mode. Uh, they tend to be more delirious or confused uh, because their body's devoting all the energy to try to fight this infection. So on the very first thing we notice is that patients often are not able to really tell us what has been happening. Uh, in an ideal world, their loved one or family member or friend is with them or available to sort of tell us what's going on. But often we, we operate in the first six, 12 to 24 hours in a bit of a vacuum in which we just know the patient's sick. We can usually identify likely sources of where that infection is, lung is the most common, but other, other things like skin infections, you know, could, are obvious uh, visually. And, and then we have to begin treatments um, at times, many times without discussing being able to discuss in detail with the patient who, who, like I said, is quite confused. And um, although this isn't always the case, but, but needs someone else to be their, their temporary decision maker, you know, um, 
So that's the very first thing that, that we see when patients come in, in addition to the, the triggers that make, make our health system alarm, which is low blood pressure, needing lots of oxygen, racing heartbeats. Those are, those are things which, which have been well characterized over the years. But if you were a lay person or a family member, what, what you would usually tell us is, I just noticed they weren't um, making sense, talking much, and then they became very lethargic. That's, that's, that's our, you know, what we see from the end of the bed on the, on the first um, admission. And when, I mean, now we're seeing with, with COVID and, and, you know, common language about intubation wasn't talked about very often. And, and now again, with COVID, we're seeing, you know, percentage of, of intubation is quite high in severe case of COVID and, and with septic patients, severe septic patients become intubated. And can you talk a little bit about what the process of intubation really means? Because I'm not sure. And I mean, before becoming sick myself or, you know, in Kristen's case, becoming that sick, I don't know if we even knew what being intubated actually meant. And and if, if you can explain kind of what that process is and what being intubated actually means for a patient, I think that will help um, the listeners understand how severe, how severely ill patients with either, you know, severe sepsis or, or severe COVID because of what we're talking about in, in the real world right now, what that actually means. Yeah, happy to. So, so I think, you know, in, 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 in our minds in, in the ICU of people who are being interested in this field for, for a while, you know, COVID is, is, the, is currently one of the biggest causes of sepsis, you know, because we, we define sepsis as an infection of any sort causing damage to your body uh, beyond, beyond the damage it's doing at its local site. So, so just to be clear now, COVID, COVID has, it's a little bit special in that, um, and it's allowed us to have some success in, in treating it because it is special. It, it, from the minute you're infected to when you might get sick, it has a very well-established and uh, like it's, it's a regular course um, at around seven to 10 days. That's when you're going to either beat it or get sicker um, very reproducibly. Um, the, the type of pneumonia it causes is a very, it's a type of pneumonia. You don't have a lot of phlegm and you just are air hungry. And that that's a big contrast to a type of, usual type of pneumonia with a bacterial pneumonia, like say streptococcal pneumonia, where you are also air hungry, but you have tremendous amounts of, of uh, phlegm. Your body creates a lot more pus, if you like, against a bacteria than a virus. So, so the course of a, a pneumonia from a bug such as streptococcus, a bacteria, is a lot more variable. Some, some people can beat it more easily. Others can't keep up with their phlegm. And, 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 but, but in the final analysis at the day seven to 10 mark for COVID and maybe around day three to five for a bacterial pneumonia, the patient is going to come to a point where either they're, they're, they've, their immune system and the strength of their cough and the strength of their lungs pre-existing 
is going to be able to withstand the damage which has happened from the infection and allow the antibiotics, antivirals to get them through to the other side, or they just can't quite keep up. Uh, there's too much phlegm. There's too much uh, virus in the lungs in the case of COVID, not enough oxygen getting through. And at that point, we have to uh, decide what kind of additional treatment to take over the lung function is is best. And in general, that's going to be a type of uh, ventilator. Now, what a ventilator is, is um, it has two, two main functions. One is it provides extra boost of, of pressure. So we all breathe by sucking in air. We we like lower our diaphragms and that creates a vacuum and it pulls in air. That's how we, we do it. And if we get too tired where our diaphragms don't pull enough air and we need a boost, the original ventilators back when polio was uh, uh, causing all sorts of problems, basically did that. Uh, they, they were called an iron lung and they would increase the suction. People thought the only way to sort of help a patient breathe was to essentially put your whole chest in a, in a vacuum and it would pull your diaphragms down through suction. But over the years, we found uh, that it's actually much more, uh, much safer and reproducibly able to, to ventilate somebody by doing the opposite, which is we need to put positive, we need to rather than suck air in, we need to blow it in. Okay, so ventilators essentially are blowing air in under pressure to the lungs and adding that to your own body's ability to pull air in. To do that, we have to have a, a seal of some sort to pressurize the lungs. And the two ways we currently do it is called non-invasive or invasive ventilation. A non-invasive ventilator means a very tight-fitting mask goes over the nose and mouth. And we can, can strap that on and uh, blow pressure in. The patient must be quite awake to, to have that. They can't have too much phlegm because the, it doesn't allow them to cough it out very well. Uh, and it's only meant for about four to six hours to get you through something uh, that we know we can improve over that time frame. Usually that none of those things uh, are the case with a severe pneumonia such as COVID or with uh, bacterial pneumonia. So what we are left with is uh, invasive ventilation. And what by invasive, we mean the seal happens within the body. And that means that a tube, like when you get an operation is placed um, past your vocal cords into your lungs. Your vocal cords are essentially the, at, at your throat level, that's the barrier between your mouth, tongue and upper uh, airway area and your lower airway. And we need to put a, a tube past that barrier, past the vocal cords into the trachea, into the, into the deep lung, blow up a balloon, uh, which seals the airway, and then we can pressurize it. Um, so, so that's, that's sort of the, the reasoning and concept behind why we would do that. What the, all that, you know, we can explain to a patient, but that, that's not uh, what they experience. What they experience is, is um, uh, that they're very tired, air hungry at that time, variably awake. The COVID patients tend to be much more awake and able to converse uh, because they're not fighting with the uh, the phlegm and so on as much. But um, but 
but they, so they may or may not be completely with it. And what they experienced though, is, is that we uh, need a team of people in the room. And since the COVID era, we're all dressed, uh, it'll be more disorienting in this era than previously, although it was disorienting before. So there'll be a physician who places the tube called an endotracheal tube there in our system here in North America, we use a respiratory technician who is a, a trained uh, individual who helps uh, essentially, it's like a, like a scrub nurse in the OR. They get, get you the tools, they have it ready. They know how to use the ventilator. They're, they're kind of a very indispensable part in, in, in Europe. That's all, that, that, that functions often uh, done by the ICU nurse, but uh, here we have a, a separate person. The ICU nurse will be there to give drugs. Um, and, uh, and then we'll have other trainees and so on. So there'll be at least three people in the room for COVID patients. We limit it to two or three for other patients. We, we may have more, just, um, it's all about the exposure to the personnel less, you know, so what the patient experiences is that, um, we tell them we're going to make them sleepy to place a tube through the vocal cords. Uh, one has to be put under a type of general anesthetic it's very normal to fight against a tube being put through your vocal cords if you were wide awake. So we give a type of medication. There's a number of them, but uh, it's, we use the same types of medications as you get for an operation where you get completely put under. We use a type of medication in addition to um, called a muscle paralytic. So there's no coughing or uh, it's a short acting one to two minute period where all muscles in the body are paralyzed. So we don't have any coughing and, and movement. So we can see to the best advantage, try to uh, place the tube in the correct place. And uh, from the minute that the sedation goes in, the general anesthetic, the patient will probably have about two to three seconds of consciousness. Uh, uh, and then they will be out for 30 to 60 minutes, depending on patient and the dose used. After that, the tube is placed. Um, what, what they will wake to, what we usually do, because that's an un, um, that tube is generally placed in an op operative setting and it's not comfortable to wake up to it after you've just been sedated and you, you might be confused as to what's happening. So we usually put some level of sedation on for the at least the first day after the patient goes on the breathing machine. So they don't wake up to a wide awake state where they're panicked and don't really know what's happening and why they're there. We would run uh, a low grade type of general anesthetic. We use a medication called propofol routinely. It's, uh, it's very um, short acting and we can turn it on and off, but there's a number uh, of medications and we keep them uh, sleepy, able to respond to voice, but, um, but not, uh, panic and, and the nurses are very good at defining who, you know, the, like, um, the look of panic, tremor, uh, things like that, that, that let us know that, that our sedation is not quite enough in that first day. And then we slowly try to orient the patient as to what is, what did happen, what is happening and what is likely to happen. They need to be more awake as that goes. And I think as in a general rule that the more young and healthy you are to start, the less tolerable a tube through your throat is, you have more of a reaction against it. And the less successful we are in waking 
you up and talking to you while that tube is in. And the more deeply we, we were forced to sedate you or there's coughing, struggling, trying to get out of bed and pull that tube out um, in the, in the sort of dream state as they emerge from the dream state, if you like. So. And typically that's a lot. <laughs> typically how, how long can a patient be intubated for? Is there a limit? Yeah, to that? I mean, our average, our average time or median time, like the most common amount of days, once you need to go on a ventilator is about two and a half or three. Now, but different conditions. So for COVID, by the COVID uh, for instance, um, because you've already had all your treatments up front in general, and they've all obviously not been successful if you go on a ventilator, those COVID patients might be the, the median we're seeing, the average time on the ventilator is probably, it's definitely over 10 days by the time we're there. So those patients have sort of selected they haven't selected themselves, but but their 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 course has been selective, so uh, they they are going to be a longer frame, uh, longer time frame. So we we generally the tube is about because it has to go from your mouth ex, out. Of, there's a portion out of the mouth which is about three to four centimeters, then another twenty one to twenty five centimeters inside the body. So that's quite a long tube. Uh, and over time, uh, phlegm builds up in it and it can become dislodged more easily and stuff. So if we know or if we suspect the patient's going to need more than 10 to 14 days on a breathing machine for uh, whatever reason, we generally suggest that we move to the same, it's the same intent but it's much shorter and it's less able to be dislodged and it's called a temporary tracheotomy tube. And that tube goes below the vocal cords. We usually, I see doctors, we now place them ourselves at the bedside and we uh, sort of five, 10 minute procedure. Um, and that's it. The way we do it now leaves only a tiny pinhole. Usually like uh, it's, it's put in through a needle and then dilation rather than the old style surgeries with cutting down to the trachea. So uh, those are for patients. It's the same reason and rationale, but it's, it's safer in the long term, less damage to your vocal cords. It doesn't, it goes below them and doesn't um, it's not like sort of rubbing through your vocal cords and making you lose your voice and stuff like that over time. And, and, and so, yeah, that we, I'd say about 20, 30% of our patients in the ICU end up with one of those, a tracheotomy during their course in, in an effort to interact with the ventilator, but not be too damaged by the ventilator. Right. And, um, and risk of infection is, is there a risk of infection to either of those less with a trach or. Um, I think in general, uh, slightly less with the tracheotomy. It's a bit hard to say because our routine is for other reasons like safety and, and, and vocal cord damage. Our routine is pretty, you know, there haven't been a lot of uh, uh, comparative studies looking at a tracheotomy versus not tracheotomy because, because uh, th there, there's at least three to four reasons to do the tracheotomy. So it's a bit hard to say whether 
it, it has less infection. It does have reduced those other things I mentioned. It, it reduces those complications. Um, anytime you're on a, have a tube through your throat and you, you're not coughing normally and you're lying in bed all day because we're sedating uh, you as a patient, you're going to be more prone to a secondary infection, which tend to be uh, pneumonia in the lungs, like another pneumonia from a hospital type of bug. And sometimes we use these special kind of IVs that go into a large vein um, called central lines. And the bugs kind of take about a week to 10 days to sort of move from the skin all the way to the bloodstream through those lines. And, and we call those catheter related bloodstream infections. Um, those are the two main kind of infections you pick up as a result of the treatments we do in ICU. But, but so far, you know, there's no way we have looked at things like replacing lines at a routine date, like at day five or replacing the tube itself uh, at a certain day. And it just, um, I think because the transit of one line to another or one tube to another pushes bugs back and forth, we, it's actually been worse to, to replace things on schedule. And we just uh, survey and treat if we find it, but we haven't found a way to prevent that. Uh, yet. Right. And then Kristen talked a lot about a bit about being extubated too early in her situation. Um, mm -hmm. When, when is it the right time to extubate a patient or is it, is there, is it sometimes just like in her case, a bit of trial and error to see, you don't know until you know, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's that's one of the, the trickier parts, especially in younger folks, as I said, who uh, what we know with certainty is how much pressure we're needing to give in the lungs and uh, how much oxygen is being required. And once those become to levels very consistent with breathing on your own, that's when we consider extubating somebody. So I'm, 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 I'm certain that that was the case then what is unknown and can't be, it's sort of uh, what can't be known until you uh, discontinue the sedation and the tube together is how awake the, the if we haven't been able to, to nurse the patient completely awake because of gagging, coughing, intolerance of whatever tube form it is, then we we quickly, we have to quickly stop the sedative. And once they hit a level of awareness, which is where we're, we think is on the way up to a good level, but not so awake that they're um, fighting us, not because they don't like us, but because they <laughs> are confused as to what's happening. That's when we'll take the tube out. Now, there are sometimes, sometimes what happens is there's just too many uh, secretions of phlegm uh, for the level of consciousness they regain. And even if we stop the sedative, maybe they're still a little bit sleepy, a little bit delirious. They don't realize they have to cough. And if they had, if they had returned to a wide awake scenario, which we can't predict ahead of time, okay. but if they had, they would do very well and it would be just fine. But because they're, a little bit groggy, not aware that they have to cough every hour to, to get through this. The, the phlegm builds up 
And the most, so the most common reason to, to fail a, an extubation or to require reintubation, as in this case, would be that the, the, the level of phlegm is too much for the, the level of strength and uh, of cough and awareness that you have to cough afterwards. Right, yeah. right, right. And <clears throat> I, I, I mean, that's great information. I think a lot of people don't quite understand the, what it means to be in, intubated. And, and I think especially when it comes, when, when you hear stories of people who have been intubated, you know, what does that actually mean? And, and how severely sick were you to be intubated? I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's, that is like, that is severely sick <laughs> to, to require mechanical ventilation. I mean, you, you can't breathe on your own. So you are that sick. Um, and so, yeah, I think what we tell the patient in the moment, if they're wavering, if they are awake and wavering is, uh, I mean, we, 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 we don't tell it quite so bluntly, but sometimes we have to, is that, uh, it, I mean, it is a choice, but in the end, to refuse the intubation at the time when we're recommending it, they, it's fairly certain that you would die without it. Yeah. So the choice is, uh, you know, some, some people say, I mean, if they have terminal cancer or so on and so forth, well, that's probably a, that's when they say, well, no, I, I, I don't want to do this because I thought about this ahead of time. But if all things being equal, if you're well and so on, the, the choice is pretty stark. And despite the discomfort, it's the only choice available. So. Right. Right. Um, now, I mean, we've, we, we've met before in person and we've, we've chatted before lots and, and one of the things that I know that you've been working on for quite a number of years is, is a, um, a, a sepsis survivor clinic, um, for patients that have post sepsis symptoms and, and helping them recover post post their infection um and now with again i mean we keep going back to this whole covid piece but covid has really been a catalyst for a lot of these post sepsis patients you know sort of validating that these are you know real things that have and real symptoms that have lingered post infection um, can you tell us a little bit about some of that work that you you have sort of spearheaded and have tried to, you know, get moving out in Vancouver um, for those post septic patients? I mean, I'm one of those. Ellie's one of those. I mean, you've got a number of patient partners that have. I mean, I'm pretty sure every patient that we've worked with has some sort of long term post septic. Um, residual symptom, sadly, um, but telling us a little bit about you know that sort that work that you're doing. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, yeah, I'd love to. So, I think um, what it's what we realized locally is uh, through you know um, great chats with uh, folks like yourself and other uh, patient partners and just uh, uh, people and patients is that. Um, the, the after effects and sequelae of a, a, an admission to critical care mainly um, 
with all the things we just talked, you know, we talked about like the, the, the drugs required for intubation, the lying, lying flat, all sorts of stuff that, that occurs um, are, it's kind of a very analogous to cancer survivors, which it used to, they used to, 25 years ago, people just focused on the chemotherapy and radiation uh, for two months and then uh, gave you your ticket to head back home. And then the realization came that there was a whole uh, slew of things which happened both as, as a result of the, the disease itself uh, and as a result of the treatments. It's very, very similar to that kind of um, philosophy. And now sepsis is sort of the prototype of what brings you to a critical care unit needing life support, medications like sedation, lying flat, losing muscle mass, and losing part of your life that you get back in flashes and, you know, disrupts your sleep and, and uh, mental well-being and so on. So, so I think that um, sepsis has some unique um, characteristics, certainly with like what, you know, what it, uh, why you came, why a patient comes and maybe the after effects, but I would say 90 to 95% of the experiences a patient people have as, um, and whether it's labeled as post um, sepsis, post COVID or post critical care, um, most of those are very, very similar. And if you just listed them and talked to somebody without knowing what had brought them in the first place, you would think it's the same thing. And in many, you know, many of the elements are similar. So all that being said, so, so, so we initially were focusing on sepsis patients only, but I think that the intent is going to be sort of a com complex illness or a critical illness, uh, looking at the aftermath of that and trying to, trying to help there. Um, so the, the things that, you know, one, one e easy thing, but not, not easy, but um, one thing people want is someone just to sit with them and describe some elements of a debrief, if you like, of their state. Like, why did that happen to me? Uh, what happened to me in the ICU? How come I, you know, can't walk in my right leg very easily? Well, you know, there, there might've been a, a central venous line there that, that gave, you know, there's, there's, there's sort of a debrief phase that like, um, it doesn't have any specific, uh, you know, use other than, but I think quite helpful for patients to, uh, to hear what happened and uh, tie up loose ends as to know that they're not the only one suffering this. And if they're not crazy, you know, that they, they do have reasons to feel as they do. I think that's, has value in itself. And that's like a, has been a big part of, uh, follow-up clinics where they've started them uh, places like in the United States Vanderbilt university has pioneered sort of uh, this type of clinic. And they've definitely found that the debrief is a big part of it. And, and then, you know, I think what, what we've have some great uh, folks I'm working with um, because we've been searching for what is the kernel of what we can offer uh, in, in a follow-up clinic. In other words, well, the, the things that tend to go wrong after discharge from critical care. So let's say, you know, people who survive their intense stay, they um, recover a little bit in hospital 
after the ICU and then they go home, gosh, they have lots of stuff happening. And almost half of them over the next few years will come back to ICU. And that's from things like your immunity has been suppressed a great deal. Uh, and you tend to get uh, pneumonias or uh, an infection again. Not just sepsis patients, anybody who's been through the critical care unit and uh, uh, needed a, a ventilator for a number of days. That, we see that very frequently. There's an increased risk of heart and stroke disease in the, in the first few years after uh, a critical care incident, probably from the inflammation from the immune system going uh, kind of haywire fighting the primary uh, event. Uh, and then weakness, um, physical weakness is a huge inability to do the things that you used to do, um, whether that's just going for a walk with the dog, or if you were um, more of an athlete, uh, getting back to those those uh, daily things that make your life good. Those are huge elements. So, so we've been searching for what, like, what could tie the, all those things together, because you can certainly go after each individual organ, you know, the kidneys don't work perfectly, the lungs don't work perfectly, but, but we're um, near, you know, we think uh, I'm working with a, a, a great uh, new recruit to UBC who's starting a, an exercise program. Like uh, we're going to measure, we're just starting this in January. We're going to measure on discharge from intensity. Uh, this is an example of what I think, like how could you treat all these diverse things with one, one, one element, which could, could help. And I think exercise, uh, physical activity and exercise is something which improves all aspects of health. And so this fellow, what we have in mind is we're going to measure how objectively, how, how much exercise uh, can be done after discharge from the ICU, but in hospital. And then his, his research has been on adapt, like using almost like a, what they do for the Olympians is, you're starting at this level of exercise ability based on how much, you know, VO2 max and these quite sophisticated measures where we can measure exactly how much exercise you can do and do an individualized exercise prescription over an eight week period, for instance, and you find not only how much more exercise and activity that's going to let you get to, but uh, how that impacts your immune system, how much that can reduce readmission for things like pneumonia or heart and stroke disease. And we're, we're running a similar uh, uh, concept with, with the uh, nutrition and nutritional supplements uh, aimed at normalizing some, some of the, the, the bloodstream uh, abnormalities, which result from critical illness and sepsis. And so the, those things are, you know, rather than target one of the six organs, which, one at a time, I think we need to really think about the person as a whole and treatments or interventions, which can likely improve, lift everything and improve everything uh, uh, in addition to a sense of well-being. So I think that's, that's where we're going with this uh, clinic, which will be research-based to start. And we, we, the region has asked us to pilot the concept of these interventions uh, pretty intense interventions, if you like, afterwards, because it, it, in an era where we've uh, used all our resources for COVID and we're stretched and so on, they really do want to know, did these interventions improve some some hard outcomes? And uh, and so, so that's what we're starting 
in the spring or uh, winter with, with um, sort of exercise and nutrition as our first line of treatments and so on. Well, I mean, that's great. I think <clears throat> it's been a, I mean, there's patients that have been post, I mean, I'm seven and a half years and knowing now that there's, there's going to be this available for patients going forward is a, you know, it's a big deal, I think. And, and not only the physical piece of it, but the psychological piece, the emotional piece and, and knowing that, I mean, the debrief alone would have, uh, would have helped a lot of, a lot of what went on. I mean, for, for, for a lot of patients, I think just knowing, you know, what actually happened, especially patients that were unconscious for a, a large portion of their ICU stay, which many of them are. Um, and just, you know, just to know what happened, right. I think is, and why any, I mean, you don't, some don't want to know it, but some want to know. And, and I think just giving that, that it empowers patients to understand what happened to them and, and lets them move forward and gives them that closure um, to be able to move forward and just lets them take control of their health as they move forward. So I think that's, I mean, that's fantastic work. So um, it was really great. I mean, really great to talk to you, really informative. I think it gave a lot of pieces and, you know, the stark reality of intubation. I, I mean, it, it's it's important that patients and, and general public understand um, how severe sepsis can become. I mean, that is the most severe a, sep a, a sepsis infection can, well, most severe can become death, but the 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 borderline to severity is you know is the intubation piece, and and that's important that we we let people know that that is how severe sepsis is, and and I really appreciate you coming today, John. It was great to talk to you. Well, thanks for thanks for doing this. This is but uh, it was really fun to see the the production side, and um, I really appreciate you doing it. I think it's gonna really positively impact a lot of people. So thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for being here, Dr. Boyd. On the next episode of the Action on Sepsis podcast, I am joined by Andy Ann, an MD-PhD student at the Hancock Lab at the University of British Columbia to talk about post-sepsis syndrome in patients and some of the research he has been a part of surrounding sepsis and post-sepsis care. That's this week's episode of UBC's Action on Sepsis podcast. We thank the brave sepsis survivors that have come forward to share their stories, our review panel that includes physicians, clinicians, researchers, and our patient advisors. If you like this podcast, make sure to hit subscribe to keep up with the latest episodes and give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Join the conversation by connecting on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and let us know what you think about this week's topic. You can also check out our blog for resources and links to topics on this episode at sepsis.ubc.ca slash podcast.